went from a life of doubting, fearing, and questioning God to one of living by faith. Sounds like a believer worth emulating, right? We're talking about the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. But what's this ancient guy with the funny-sounding name have to do with us in the middle of a pandemic and political turmoil? Answer? More than you might think. Get the whole story when you join us now for The Land and the Book. Hey, happy Thanksgiving weekend. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, I'm thinking about all the things that I've got to be thankful for. Certainly my wife, my health, uh, two kids that are both walking with the Lord. How about six grandkids, five girls, one boy? I I can't get enough of them. In fact, when I'm with them one day and uh, I see them the next, I say, hey, I missed you. That's how much I love being with them. Well, as we always do, we're going to turn our thoughts now toward current events in the Middle East. This is segment one of four, so let's take a look, Charlie. The turmoil within Israel's government continued this week as Prime Minister Netanyahu's coalition partner announced a probe into Israel's recent submarine purchases. Pardon the pun, but is this yet another attempt to torpedo the current coalition government? Just when you think the coalition can't become more dysfunctional, a story like this comes along. In addition to serving as alternate prime minister, Benny Gantz also serves as defense minister. And it's in that capacity that he announced he was forming a government committee to investigate potential irregularities in Israel's purchase of submarines and other ships from Germany. This so-called submarine affair is also known as Case 3000, and it involves allegations of bribery to influence Israeli officials to purchase ships and submarines from a German manufacturer. The case has surfaced before, and the Attorney General didn't feel there was enough evidence to launch a criminal probe into Netanyahu over the matter. However, Gantz set up a government commission of inquiry operating under the Defense Ministry. This probe will run according to military law and require any citizen who's subpoenaed, including Netanyahu, to appear. In the previous inquiry, there was no evidence that Netanyahu had received bribes or kickbacks or done anything wrong, though a cousin was charged along with some other allies. This looks like an attempt to dredge up additional charges against Netanyahu to weaken his hold on power in preparation for future elections. It's very uncertain that any charges against Netanyahu will come from the probe, but his opponents seem to think that if they can throw enough mud against the wall, some Mm. might stick. Or, at the very least, the charges will place Netanyahu under a greater cloud of suspicion. Budget squabbles, a law to draft the ultra-Orthodox into the military, Netanyahu's impending trial, which is scheduled now to start in February, and then now this submarine scandal. All of these coming together sure make it look like uh, people are out to torpedo the current coalition and bring about new elections. Uh, This coalition could very well collapse sometime in the next few weeks. Mm, Not good news. The Palestinian Authority has publicly welcomed a Biden presidency, and they're trying to demonstrate that by resuming contact and cooperation with Israeli officials. Could this uh, open the way for peace talks between the Palestinians and the Israelis? Yeah, I I would really be surprised if it leads to serious peace talks, at least in the near term. Uh, The Palestinians do want Biden in the White House, but that doesn't mean that they'll be able to turn the situation to their advantage, though they do appear to be trying a different approach. They've recommitted to implementing all their past bilateral agreements with Israel that they had recently walked away from, and that includes security cooperation. They've also agreed to resume accepting monthly transfers of tax money from Israel, which is 60% of their budget, and that'll go a long way toward helping them prop up their economy. 
They quietly returned their ambassadors to the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain to help patch up relations with those countries, and they've said they'll consider reforming their policy of paying salaries to Palestinians convicted of terrorism in Israel. But it remains to be seen how much of a change they'll actually make there. On the other side, They've demanded that the U.S. close its embassy in Jerusalem and move it back to Tel Aviv. Now, it's hard to imagine that happening since Biden, when he was a senator, helped draft and pass the legislation demanding the embassy be moved to Jerusalem. The new administration will likely return to the past approach in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, pushing for a two-state solution and encouraging Israel to make concessions. And yet, things won't be back to where they were four years ago. The peace between Israel and the Gulf states has added a new dynamic as has the move of the U.S. Embassy and the change in the U.S. position on the Golan Heights. It will be interesting to see if the Palestinian Authority will be willing to move away from any of its previous demands. And if they don't, sadly, I really don't expect any progress toward lasting peace. That's Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East scholar. I'm John Geiger. We're looking at current events from the Middle East. Two stories out of Israel this week have focused on water. One, reporting on local flooding and the other on ways to overcome water scarcity. Is there any connection between those two stories, Charlie, at, at opposite ends of the spectrum? Yeah, there is, though it might seem a bit odd. You know, Israel does sit uh, between the ocean and the desert in that area of marginal rainfall, and the entire Middle Eastern region has been experiencing a decades-long drought, and yet the area can still suffer periodic flash floods, and that's what happened this last week. Israel experienced its second major round of storms for the year, Some residents along the coast had to be rescued from the deluge. Homes and cars were flooded, streets were closed, as rain and strong wind pelted the area. Uh, The Sea of Galilee rose by nearly two inches, and Mount Hermon had its first snowfall of the season. Uh, The Sea of Galilee is now less than four feet from the upper red line, which marks the point where the lake is full and in danger of flooding. After two years of above-average rainfall, Israel's weather forecasters were predicting below-average rainfall this year, but... As of right now, most reporting stations have average or above average rainfall. Now, it's still real early in the rainy season, and we don't know if the rain will continue or stop, but it's a good start so far. In fact, they're already making plans to consider opening the dam at the southern end of the Sea of Galilee sometime in the spring to uh, stop flooding. The flip side of this story on water, though, is water scarcity, and overall, the Middle East has become drier. That's what made the second report out of Israel on ways to fight back against water scarcity so encouraging. You know, people know about, and we've talked about here, Israel's water desalination program, their use of drip irrigation, and other techniques to use water more efficiently. But they're also developing low-cost, low-tech ways to help other countries in the Middle East maintain food security in spite of dwindling water resources. In one study, researchers looked back 2,000 years to see how the Nabataeans farmed the land in spite of receiving just four inches of rain a year. And in another project, Israeli scientists are actually developing a technique to farm fish in the desert. They produced an aquatic ecosystem that can grow fish using the same amount of water used to grow tomatoes in a process that reuses 99.5% of the water and the energy to run the system is produced by waste from the fish. Now, Israel doesn't take water for granted, and they're developing ways to help other countries in the region survive in a desert climate. And I think that's really good news in this time of Thanksgiving. Oh, for sure, for sure. An Israeli scientist claims to have developed a process to pinpoint and eliminate cancerous cells using microscopic scissors. Tell us more about this innovation from Amazing Israel, Charlie. 
Yeah, and I need to start by saying their description of the technique as microscopic scissors was for illustration purposes only. Uh, No physical scissors are involved. Uh, What they have done is really remarkable. They've developed a method to pinpoint and destroy cancer cells while leaving everything around them intact. Uh, They do this with the CRISPR genome editing system to literally delete cancer cells. The system involves the injection of a nanoparticle along with messenger RNA that encodes a function for cutting the cancer DNA and a navigation system that recognizes cancerous cells. Uh, This is, by the way, the same technique being used in two of the most promising COVID-19 vaccines. These scientists are using it to fight cancer cells. The process would only impact the cancer, not the rest of the body. Now, for their study, the team chose two of the deadliest cancers, glioblastoma and metastatic ovarian cancer. Ultimately, however, they believe this new approach could be used on all types of cancer. So far, the technique has only been tested on mice, but they believe it could be available for human trials within the next two years. Imagine, John, editing the genome of cancer DNA to have it self-destruct. That would certainly be a major advance in the fight against cancer, and it's coming from Amazing Israel. Thank you, Charlie. And speaking of thanks, we want to say thank you to listeners who have stood by us, listened to us, and encouraged us with their emails. You know, now would be a great weekend to just kind of seize on this theme of Thanksgiving and thank this station for their uh, airing the land and the book. A lot of people don't realize, Charlie, that there's uh, a lot of competition for airspace. And the fact that this station has opened up this slot, that's a big deal. It really is. And uh, again, you never go wrong saying thank you. And so if someone would just take time just to write your station and say, thank you for being on the air and thank you for having the land in the book, uh, you'd be encouraging the station and us. You know, while you're in that uh, uh, card writing, email writing mode, why not let us know how God has used the program in your life? We'd sure appreciate that as well. I know it would be an encouragement to Charlie and the entire team. You can connect with us here at the land and the book at moody.edu the land and the book at moody.edu he went from a life of doubting fearing and questioning god to one of living by faith sounds like a believer worth emulating right we're talking about the old testament prophet habakkuk this uh, funny sounding name comes alive for you in a fresh conversation next here on moody radio's the land and the book pandemic, an uncertain economy, a tumultuous presidential election season, deep divisions over race, schooling, and more, it's enough to make even the staunchest person tremble. Where is God? Is he still in control? Why does he seem to be so silent? Well, we're not the first to ask these questions, as you'll discover coming up. I'm John Geiger, welcoming you back to segment two of The Land and the Book. And every week right about now, we like to strategize about how we can get more intentional and more creative in loving our Jewish friends for the sake of the gospel, like this. When it comes to sharing our faith, for many of us, it's not the how-to that we lack, it's the want-to. Beth Tavalon is with the Olive Tree Congregation. Beth, how can we find the passion and kindness we might be lacking to share Yeshua with a Jewish friend or coworker? I think having passion comes from our relationship with the Lord. And if we are lacking in our personal walk with Him, then we're not going to be passionate about the Lord. But if we're spending time in Scripture and we're spending time in prayer and we're 
really trying to keep our eyes focused on the Lord, then He's going to give us opportunities and we're going to be ready to share. And And the love that we have for the Messiah is going to come out and it can't be hidden under a bushel. We are passionate because of what he has done for us yeah. in our lives. So this is something we don't just crank up and, and manufacture in the uh, good works division inside our soul somewhere. It, this this comes, as you say, from having a real vibrant walk with Christ ourselves. Yes. And I will say, too, that it is also about being obedient. There was one time when I asked the Lord, should I share the gospel with this person? And I felt like he impressed on my heart. When would I ever say no to that question? Mm, when would I say no? Great thought. Beth Tablin with the Olive Tree Congregation joining us today with insights on the land and the book. He went from a life of doubting, fearing, and questioning God to one of living by faith. I don't know, that sounds like a, a life worth emulating to me, Right. We're talking about the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. But what's this ancient dude with a funny-sounding name have to do with us in the middle of a pandemic and political pandemonium? Well, let's ask our guest, Dana Gresh. Dana is the best-selling author, speaker, and founder of True Girl, America's most popular Christian tween event. She has authored more than 20 books that have been translated into 12 languages, including her latest from Moody Publishers, Habakkuk, Remembering God's Faithfulness When He Seems Silent. Dana is a frequent co-host for Nancy DeMoss-Wolgamuth's Revive Our Hearts, as well as a popular guest on programs like Focus on the Family and Family Life, and now The Land and the Book. In this six-week Bible study from Moody Publishers, you remind us Habakkuk was a man who was shaken by the evil and suffering in the world. Describe the evil and suffering in his world. What was happening in Judah during the time of Habakkuk? Well, it was godless. The people of God had forgotten him. They'd gotten a big case of spiritual amnesia. They'd started to live for themselves. They'd looked around at all the pagan cultures, and they saw the partying and the freedom and all the things that tempt us today, quite honestly. And they said, we want to live like that. And so they did. They lived like that. And that was the first thing that broke Habakkuk's heart, just looking and seeing the condition of the believers, the followers of God, which look around at the condition of believers today. So many times we are emulating the world, and we look a lot more like the world than we do a set-apart people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something for our hearts to break over. But on top of that, he'd been saying, God, do something, do something, do something. And God says, I'm going to do something. It's going to get real bad before it gets good. And God begins to unfold for him, essentially, his world falling apart that Judah, that the nation, God's people, would be taken captive by a horrible people group, the Chaldeans, who were bloodthirsty and just ruthless Hmm. in how they treated people. And so Habakkuk is saying, really, God, that's the answer you're going to give me? So he starts out complaining, and then he gets an answer from God. Finally, after all that prayer, (laughs) he doesn't like the answer, so he's still complaining. That's how the book of Habakkuk starts out. Sounds a little bit like some of our prayer lives this yeah. year. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Silence seems to be a bit of a theme uh, in the yeah. book. Silence from heaven. Why does God so often seem to be silent? Well, I think there's a message in the silence. As I look back over my own life, the periods of time where God seems silent, there's generally something wrong in my life mm-hmm. that God is trying to say, girl, wake up, wake up. I need you to see 
what I'm seeing. And that message in the silence is that my heart really hasn't been in tune to God. I think back to the very first time this happened. I would have been a teenager, 15 years old, so excited to serve the Lord as a missionary for Child Evangelism Fellowship, serving God in my youth group, um, teaching Sunday school three-year-olds. And I was in a Christian dating relationship that began to get off course. Mm-hmm. And was I knew I knew I need I need to break up with this boy because yeah. things are not going to go well here. I didn't, and I felt this vacuous emptiness where I once had this vibrant relationship with God. I was like, "Why aren't you talking to me? Why aren't you talking to me? Why aren't you talking to me? Say something, God, say something." Mm. And I feel like as I look back, He had said something. His Spirit had told me, had convicted me, walk away from this. And I didn't. And that was followed by silence that was deafening. And that wasn't the only time in my life, but the first time that I think the silence was meant to be a wake-up call. And that's exactly what we see in the book of Habakkuk. Dana Gresh is the best-selling author, speaker, and founder of True Girl, America's most popular Christian tween event. And she's authored over 20 books, including the six-week Bible study from Moody Publishers, Habakkuk. Remembering God's faithfulness when he seems silent. Is there always a message in God's silence, Dana? Well, you know, I believe this, that God is always at work around us. And there are times when I think there's intimacy in the silence, that there's a sweetness in the silence, that there's a settledness in our silence with God. You know, just like our marriages go through periods where you just sit together. Mm-hmm. But there's peace in that. There's not a tension of, why aren't you saying something? Why aren't you saying something? <laughs> and we need to learn the difference, and Habakkuk helps us learn that. Is God sending me a message that I need to wake up and see something in my life that needs addressed? Or is this just that peace of resting in God's presence? There's mm-hmm. a difference. What are some of the characteristics of God's voice? How can we be assured that we've heard from Him and not the uh, latest good feeling that uh, drifted through our mind or maybe last night's not-quite-digested Taco Bell dinner? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, first of all, if you're in the Word of God, you are learning to discern His voice. It becomes familiar to you as you study the Bible. And I always start there because so many people are like, I heard God say or I listened to God. I do believe God's Spirit speaks to us in a still, small voice. We can sense God's Spirit working in us. But we're not going to know if that's accurate, if that is God, unless we're familiar with the Word of God. You have Mm -hmm. to start there. So if you're Mm -hmm. not reading your Bible and you think you're hearing from God, I'm going to question that. But the Bible does say, my sheep hear my voice, and they know it. That's what Jesus said, that we would know His voice. And so how does that look like in my life? I've noticed, um, first of all, the thoughts are kind of contrary to mine. If I'm walking through the grocery store and I see someone that I know from church, but I don't know them really well, and suddenly I feel like I should go over and ask them how I can pray for them today. See, that Dana Gresh is an introvert. Dana Gresh wouldn't think that thought Mm -hmm. unless God's Spirit was prompting her. So I know it's just contrary to the natural nature of my personality. That's one thing. There's a weight to it. Have you ever been reading the Bible and it's a psalm that you've read over and over again, but suddenly one verse just sticks out. It's like it's a neon light that's been highlighted just sure. for you that day. Oh, yes. And there's weight. Mm-hmm. So those are those are just two of the characteristics. But, you know, I outline five of them in the in the Bible study because I think that when we are in God's Word, then we can begin to be more accurately in tune to when He's guiding and leading us. You mentioned a moment ago the uh, the horrific 
uh, treatment of the Chaldeans that uh, Judah was about to encounter tremendous judgment, a dark, dark chapter. So what do we learn from Habakkuk by way of a biblical definition of hope? Oh, this is one of my favorite parts of studying the book of Habakkuk. Um, You know, so many times I think we believe the lie that good times are supposed to be the norm. And then when we hit bad times, like the year 2020, we're all crying out for it to get back to normal, right? Right. Because if we believe the lie that good times are the norm, then the next thing we're going to believe is when it gets bad, it's just going to get better. But that is not what Jesus promised. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But in that trouble, we can have hope. And Habakkuk helps us understand what that hope looks like. The word hope used in the prophet's writing, it really was describing a cord that was being pulled. Think of rubber bands, and you're pulling this rubber band, and you're pulling it as far as you can. It's that sense of pulling, okay? So when you're holding that rubber band, you're thinking, when this snaps, it's going to hurt a little, right? (laughs) Right. But at least the tension will be over. The Hebrew word for hope in the book of Habakkuk is essentially that word. It's that sense of, I'm in this place of the pressure building, but I do know that even though when it breaks, it's going to hurt, that there is an end. And for us, and if you look at Habakkuk and many of the Old Testament prophets, they were not looking for just, hey, God, can we not have the Chaldeans come? Could you end that? They were not looking for just the end of the Babylonian captivity, that Habakkuk's prophecy did come true. We read about it in the book of Daniel. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are in that captivity. Mm -hmm. Um, They were looking to, this is going to snap. This is going to hurt. This is going to break. That was part of the hope, but then it will be over and Jesus will be here. And for them, they would have been looking to the first coming. But we still have a second coming of our Savior to look forward to. There is an ultimate hope. And it says that this trial that we're in this year, this coronavirus, the racial pain and tension, the division, the political angst, all of that, the growing anxiety and depression, the severe growth in suicide, and even whatever personal thing you're going through right now, the Bible says that's a former thing even now today, that one day we're going to look back and be like, my hope was in a future thing. I knew that there was going to be tension. I knew there was going to be ache when it finally broke, but then it would break and Jesus would be here. That's what Habakkuk believed. And I believe one day the pressure of this world will break and Jesus will be here for his second coming. That's our hope. Wow. Let me ask you, how do we practically move from where many of us are, Dana, full of fear, uh, for all the reasons you just mentioned, to where we'd like to be, full of joy? Uh, What does Habakkuk tell us? Well, at the end of Habakkuk, chapter 3 is essentially a song. He's singing. He's no longer saying, God, why aren't you saying anything? God, why aren't you doing anything? He's no longer pleading with God for his plans. He's suddenly singing a worship song. Hmm. And that worship song contains these words, and they're familiar to a lot. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. Those are the words Hmm. to his song. And 
you can see his circumstances haven't changed. This is not like a bad day on a hobby farm. This is economic <laughs> collapse. These are nice. the economic portfolio of the land of Judah, the fig tree, the grapes, the olive crop. And so he's in the middle of that saying, yet I will rejoice. What's changed? Well, I think what's changed is that instead of asking God for the circumstances of his life to change, he started to say, okay, just be here with me in it. And at some point, we have to read our Bibles and say, this isn't about God fixing every piece of my broken world. It's about him being with me in it. Mm. And I couldn't help but think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace when I got to this passage yeah. in Scripture, because I thought, okay, Habakkuk prophesies about what they live through, right? And they end up in this fiery furnace, and King Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, didn't we send three guys in there bound up? Why do I see four? And the bounds have been burned up, but they have not been burned up. <laughs> that is the picture for us of joy, mm. that the, the fire is still around us, but the enslavement, the, the bondages in our lives have been burned off by the flames. Oh, I pray that 2020 burns off some of the bondage in my life and to turn my heart to satisfaction that it's okay to be in this year yeah. because he's here in it with me. That's what joy looks like. Well, if you enjoyed today's conversation, you are going to love Habakkuk, remembering God's faithfulness when he seems silent. A Bible study from Moody Publishers that Dana Gresh has put together. Dana, thank you for your time and those marvelous insights. Uh, you've certainly given me something to think about, and I'm sure our listeners join me in that. So appreciate your time. My pleasure. And Charlie Dyer returns next with a fresh stack of Bible questions. I hope yours is one of them next on The Land and the Book. Things in life are more satisfying than having puzzled over a question for a long time only to find an answer. You're about to discover some answers to your questions about the Bible, prophecy, and the Middle East in this third segment on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Answering those questions, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Let's get right to Robin's question. She says, uh, I listen via podcast, and we're glad for that. Charlie, for somebody who doesn't know we have a podcast, what's it all about, and what's the advantage to listening that way? Well, the advantage first is that they can listen to the program anytime. It's there available for their schedule. Uh, they can also find it on our website. Just go to thelandinthebook.org, and uh, there's a section there where they can click on to uh, get the podcast. Uh, so it makes it more convenient for listening to the program in our hectic schedules. All right, and again, you find it at thelandandthebook.org. Robin says, in reading Exodus 32, 11 through 14, it seems to indicate that God can change his mind. Can he? Yeah, the question comes up in slightly different forms in other passages in the Bible as well. Like in Jonah 3, it says God relented of the calamity he threatened to bring on Nineveh. Now, in those passages, uh, the writer's using a figure of speech that describes a, a human emotion, but it then gives it to God. Uh, the best way to answer this is to start with Numbers chapter 23. And in that chapter, uh, we're told that God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. And by the way, that's the same Hebrew word. You know, since God's perfect, he's internally consistent, he doesn't change his mind like we do. 
because his actions are always perfect. But from our perspective, God can appear to change his mind in response to what we do. Uh, That is, God always says he'll bless those who follow him, and he'll consistently judge those who turn against him. So it can look as if God changed his mind, but actually, it's the people who changed. Jeremiah explained this in in Jeremiah 18. He said, uh, God says, at one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot or pull down or destroy it. If that nation against which I've spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. And then he goes on and says he could do the reverse. Uh, The point is that God didn't change. He'll always judge sin and always bless those who turn to him. As we change, it appears as if God changes, but he didn't. Uh, It was us who changed initially. Alice takes us to Isaiah 8, verse 3, where it says, Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. At first glance, it seems the Lord wanted Isaiah to illicitly impregnate a prophetess, a temple prostitute. This doesn't seem right. Is this referring to Isaiah's wife? Yeah, in fact, Alice, I think the passage is referring to Isaiah's wife. Uh, She could have perhaps been a, a prophet or prophetess in her own right. You know, Moses' sister Miriam was called a prophetess back in Exodus. Uh, Or it's possible that she was called a prophetess simply because she was the wife of a prophet. Uh, We can't say for sure, but I don't believe we need to assume anything sinful in the description. Isaiah's children, including the names they were given, were intended as signs to Judah. Uh, Isaiah actually says that in chapter 8. His first child, Shir Jashub, or Sha'ar Yashuv, means a remnant will return. And that was this promise of blessing for the remnant. His second child, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, there's a name for a kid, yeah. <laughs> uh, means something like swift to the booty, speedy to the prey, which was a threat of judgment because of Ahab's and Judah's disbelief. But I believe the prophetess was Isaiah's wife. Here's a question from Forrest. He says, is the ruin that Ron Wyatt committed so much of his life to researching the real Noah's Ark? He also claimed to have found the Ark of the Covenant. And if so, why are so many unaware of this discovery? Yeah, I'm familiar with Ron Wyatt's reports on the Ark, but I just can't accept them. Uh, Ron Wyatt was persuasive, but his claims don't stand up to the light of careful research. I believe the flood really happened because God said so in his word, and I'd be thrilled if someone were to find the remains of the Ark. But after 5,000 years in an area with a lot of rain and snow, the idea of finding any intact remains of a wooden boat are, are just hard to believe. Let's go to Mike in Tyler, Texas. His question, in the garden, Eve told the serpent that she was not to touch the fruit. Obviously, this was not what God had told her, and this was before she actually ate it. Do you believe she sinned by not telling the serpent the truth prior to her eating the fruit? You know, I don't believe Eve sinned in in giving her answer, though she did include more than what God had actually said. But she didn't sin in the sense of deliberately and willfully violating God's command when she answered Satan. Uh, Romans 5 says, through one man, sin entered the world and and death through sin. And Paul balances that out in 1 Timothy 2 when he said, Adam wasn't the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived uh, and became a sinner. So I put all that together and I think we can say Eve was deceived by Satan and the serpent, but her decision to eat the forbidden fruit was when she sinned. And Adam deliberately choosing to disobey what he clearly understood God's command to be was his sin. And those two actions happened at virtually the same time, but Eve's answer to the serpent wasn't actually the sin. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio, and we're working our way through a list of questions that have come to us via email. There's a huge backlog, and we're doing our best to get to as many of them as we can. Uh, Would you please give me your opinion, says this listener, as to why God did not allow Moses to enter the promised land? 
obviously he was an incredible man of God, had the awesome experience of talking with God more than anyone. I'm having difficulty understanding how his sin was more egregious compared to the others that were allowed into the land that traveled from Egypt. Yeah, I think the answer is understanding the greater responsibility God gives to those in leadership. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Uh, James uh, in chapter 3 said, Not many of you should presume to be teachers, my brothers, because you don't know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Mm. Uh, The principle is that those who are given greater authority from God and who are entrusted to lead on behalf of God are held to a much stricter level of accountability because of the authority they've received. Uh, The children of Israel disobeyed God multiple times before he finally refused them permission to enter the promised land. Moses was held to a higher standard. and To me, this is a solemn reminder that God expects more from those whom he places in positions of authority. Jan asks, could you please explain your beliefs on Psalm 82, where it refers to the divine counsel? Yeah, yeah. first, uh, when you read Psalm 82, it does sound perplexing, especially in regard to that divine counsel uh, and the statement that's there, you are gods, in in verse 6. But there's no shortage of possible interpretations. So take this with a grain of salt as I taught my classes. I see Psalm 82 as a wisdom psalm where the writer, who's called Asaph, uh, is declaring that God will judge human judges. His purpose is to warn those judges to not be unrighteous while he asks God to judge them with his righteousness. And Asaph does all this while using very poetic imagery. Now, as a result, I see the great assembly in verse 1 there picturing a symbolic gathering of human rulers summoned to stand before God's throne in heaven. Asaph refers to these human rulers as gods in verses 1 and 6 in the sense that Like the ultimate judge in heaven, they also hold the power of life and death in their hands as people appear before them. They can declare someone innocent or guilty, allowing one to go free while condemning another to death. Asaph isn't saying there that they're actual gods, nor is he promoting the idea that there are multiple gods in the universe. Now, as these human judges sit on their thrones in their physical assembly halls, we'd probably call them courtrooms, uh, he calls on them to recognize that they're also appearing in God's assembly hall in heaven. Asaph calls on them to stop defending the unjust or showing partiality to the rich. Instead, they're to show true justice in the sense of making sure the weak, the fatherless, the poor, and the oppressed get treated fairly when those individuals stand before them. Then in verses 6 and 7, he says, even though these human judges might be perceived as gods by others in the sense of having such power and authority, they need to recognize that the ultimate judge is the one who holds the power of life and death in his hands. If they continue in their unrighteous ways, he says, you will die like mere men. You will fall like every other ruler. Eleanor takes us to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 20, verse 3, asking, why would God have Isaiah go naked for three years for a sign? Yeah, actually, there are two parts to this question. First, did he really go around completely naked, or as they'd say in Texas, naked? Uh, I think the answer is no. Uh, In verse 2, he's told to take off his outer garment of sackcloth and his sandals, but he's not told to take off the undergarment. Uh, It leads to the second question, you know, why was he asked to do this? Well, it was a sign to Egypt and Cush that they would be carried away as prisoners to Assyria in the same way, that is, with their outer garments and sandals removed. Egypt was the country Judah was hoping would defend them from Assyria, so Isaiah was saying they wouldn't be able even to defend themselves. Now, how can I be sure that naked only refers to the main outer garment? 
Well, there are wall reliefs from Assyria that show how they treated their prisoners. One shows prisoners bowing down after being captured. Each of them is naked from the waist up, showing their outer garment had been taken off and their sandals had been removed. Likely, Isaiah was walking around like this to demonstrate how the Egyptian prisoners would be treated once they'd been captured by the Assyrians. All right, that's a question I've kind of wondered myself, you know, and and I appreciate your shedding some light on that, Charlie. Your question's welcome anytime, by the way. Send us an email at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Charlie's devotional is next, and I love the fact, Charlie, that you take us to a place and a passage every time, and we never forget it. John, I'm looking forward to opening up the Bible. It hopefully will be a great time for everyone. Okay, and that's all coming up on this segment ahead, right here on The Land and the Book. And we welcome you back to this Thanksgiving weekend edition of Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager. Up ahead, the one Thanksgiving parade mentioned in the Bible. It's Charlie Dyer's devotional. First, though, this Holy Land experience. I was so excited when they said that I was going to be able to make a trip to Israel. That was really over the top. One of my favorite memories there that has really changed my life is to see the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry, so overlooking it and being told where uh, Mary Magdalene came from, where he found several of his apostles, where they crossed the sea, where the demoniac was. I, it was just incredible to see this whole land and the importance of each spot that we walked, the synagogue that was built on top of a synagogue where Jesus taught, um, just everywhere held some incredible meaning. And so my life has changed in my Bible reading, obviously, and the things that keep coming back to mind are those pictures, the pictures of the Jesus boats, the kind of sailing boats that they took when they went out to the sea uh, to fish. Those kinds of things were really impressive to me and keep coming back to mind as I read my Bible and know that the things I saw were the things that Jesus saw. And uh, it just makes it so much more personalized and so much more of this is real. This is uh, the land. This is the book. This is Jesus taken really deep into my life. Thanks very much and appreciate that perspective. Well, you know, Charlie, for lots of people, a Thanksgiving parade is something they look forward to watching on television or maybe being a part of. Grand tradition, always a sorry thing, though, kind of sad to see Thanksgiving come and go. You know, you enjoy that dinner and the pumpkin pie, and it's kind of sad to see Thanksgiving uh, in the rearview mirror. Yeah, Thanksgiving has come and gone. Uh, The carcass of the sacrificial bird is out in the trash waiting to be hauled away, and you're still eating your way through all the leftovers. What comes to mind, though, when you think back over the last few days, turkey and dressing, family gathered together, football, maybe it's watching the balloons float by on Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Whatever might come to mind, we we do have a lot to be thankful for. And Thanksgiving's a day when we pause, we look back at God's faithfulness over the past year. But does Thanksgiving, and, and here I'm referring to the attitude, not just the one day of celebration, 
Does thanksgiving always need to be celebrated looking in the rearview mirror? Can't we also be thankful for what God is going to do in our lives? To answer that question, let's take a walk out into the wilderness of Judah. My favorite part of Israel is the wilderness. Now, some might say that's because so much of Israel is wilderness. But I believe it goes back to my first trip there as a young professor. It was a student tour, and we did a lot of walking, much of it through the wilderness. I just fell in love with the stark beauty and incredible variety of that area. When I lead tours today, I I like taking groups into the Judean wilderness. I also like driving them out to a place called the Herodium, a a volcano-shaped fortress on the very edge of that wilderness. The fortress was built by Herod the Great, and eventually it served as his mausoleum. After struggling to reach the top of the hill, tourists forget their aching knees and burning lungs once they gaze out across the horizon. To the northwest are three towers standing as sentinels on the Mount of Olives just above Jerusalem. Immediately to the west of us is Bethlehem, and as we turn toward the south, we see Tekoa, the hometown of Amos the prophet. But on a clear day, perhaps the most spectacular view is toward the east because we can actually see across the Judean wilderness all the way to the shimmering waters of the Dead Sea. But getting back to today's subject, what do Herod's mausoleum and the Judean wilderness have to do with thanksgiving and with giving thanks to God for what he's about to do in our lives? Well, one of the most amazing Thanksgiving Day parades in history marched from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, past the hill where Herod would someday be buried, to Tekoa, and then through the wilderness toward the Dead Sea. And the story of this parade is found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Good King Jehoshaphat was ruling over the kingdom of Judah when some men came running into Jerusalem from the wilderness with shocking news. A vast army is coming against you from Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Engedi. The Edomites joined forces with the Moabites and the Ammonites to launch a surprise attack against Judah. They had already crossed the tongue of land near the southern end of the Dead Sea and were staging at Engedi, less than a two-day march from Jerusalem. The king and people were in shock. They had little time to prepare any defenses. Trembling in fear, they cried out to God for help. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you, they cried out to God. Have you ever faced problems that seemed absolutely overwhelming? You felt your strength diminish while your problems seemed to increase in intensity. Where do you turn in times like that when there seems to be no way to overcome the problems rushing at you? That must be how the king and people felt as they cried in desperation to God. At their moment of greatest need, God answered. His spirit came on a Levite named Yehaziel, one of the sons of Asaph, part of the group charged with leading singing in the temple. His words from God, simple and direct, are recorded in that same chapter in verses 15 to 17. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Then a remarkable thing happened. The king and people bowed before the Lord with their faces to the ground in worship 
to thank God for his promised deliverance. The next day, the army of Judah began its march from Jerusalem into the wilderness, and the order of march was unlike any battle formation in history. Leading the army were singers appointed by Jehoshaphat, the text says, to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness. Their words became the cadence by which the entire army marched. Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. And how did this first Thanksgiving Day parade end? God had the coalition of invading armies turn on one another. By the time Jehoshaphat and his army reached the spot where they were expected to face the enemy, the invaders were already vanquished. The Bible says it this way, When the men of Judah came to the place that overlooks the desert and looked toward the vast army, they saw only dead bodies lying on the ground. No one had escaped. Three days later, the people of Judah assembled in a valley along their route to praise God for his victory. They actually renamed that valley the Valley of Baraka, meaning the Valley of Praise. And that brings us back to our day and to our celebration of Thanksgiving. It's good to thank God for what he's done in our lives. Israel had its Valley of Baraka, and we have our annual Thanksgiving holiday. Both look back in Thanksgiving to God for his provision. But before there was a Valley of Baraka, before God had defeated the invading army, Israel was told to give thanks to God. Before they thanked God for what he had done, they were told to thank God for who he is. Give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. Sometime this week, get alone with God and just thank him for who he is, a God who loves you deeply and eternally. Read Psalm 136, which might have been written following this great victory. And then, as you get ready to face the coming week's problems, struggles, and difficulties, don't forget to give thanks to the Lord, for his love endures forever. Boy, a very, very timely reminder there. Thanks, Charlie. You know, we would love for you to visit our Facebook page. I think if you like the program, it's a great way to stay connected throughout the week. Happenings in Israel and the entire Middle East region, stories of unique interest to Christians, and much more at our Facebook page. How do you get there? Well, the easiest way is to head first to our website, thelandandthebook.org, and give a click to that Facebook icon. That's thelandandthebook.org. Click on the Facebook icon. You'll be a part of that online community celebrating all that God is doing today in the Middle East. You can always hear today's program again as a podcast, which you can automatically download or listen to online right now at thelandandthebook.org. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Hope you'll join us again next week for another edition of Moody Radio's The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.